Welcome to Deutsche Bank's Horizon Scanning Podcast, where we examine the emerging threats and opportunities the economy is facing today. I am your host, Dan Hunter. In today's episode, my colleague Christiana Riley, America's CEO, unpacks US-European trade. Germany is Europe's largest economy and one that is highly export-orientated. The United States is the largest export destination for German companies. We, Deutsche Bank, are both Germany's largest bank and one of the largest foreign banks in America. Deutsche Bank means Bank of Germany. As our name suggests, we sit at the crossroads between America and the heart of Europe. If there was ever a topic that spoke to the heart of who we are in our home market in Germany and who we are in this region, this is it. Christiana is joined by three subject matter experts. Representing the European perspective, we have Johannes Pochrand, Deutsche Bank's co-head of government and regulatory advocacy, Johannes is based in Berlin. Representing the perspective of America is Frank Kelly, who's our head of public affairs here in the Americas in DC. And to provide the client view is Daniel Schmand, global head of trade finance and lending here at Deutsche Bank. Over to you, Christiana. I'm excited to get engaged in the conversation and I'm gonna kick it off with a question that's pointed to Frank and Johannes uh, to give us a little bit of context. So let's reflect on the last couple of years. As I said, you know, very volatile from the perspective of being able to predict the development uh, of transatlantic relationships. How did we get to the point where the US felt the need to apply tariffs on a nation like Germany amongst its closest allies, uh, as well as others? That question first to Frank, uh, and then Johannes to you. What was the European response? What did it feel like uh, over in Berlin in response to this you know, most unprecedented dynamic that was, was raising its head over the past couple of years? Uh, thank you, Christiana. Great to see uh, my friends Daniel and Johannes with me, along with you. Look, I think, how did we get here? There's a, there are a multitude of factors. Um, clearly, President Trump uh, felt, I should just say there was an impatience wasn't happy with the way negotiations were going versus Boeing versus Airbus. Uh, he was very much tied into this, I think, was NATO spending, which he, as we recall, a number of times threatened to leave NATO because he felt European countries weren't paying their fair share. These were all uh, a part pieces of a larger whole. And I think that impatience, we know from trade uh, negotiations, they take time, they take years. Uh, and he had no patience for this whatsoever. Now, I think it went a little further than that, where he was uh, willing to amp it up to the point of declaring uh, the German automotive sector uh, a national security threat, uh, literally, because that was the mechanism that he was going to use to start putting serious, grievous uh, tariffs on BMWs and Mercedes. So I think that all of these things were uh, a part and parcel of this. Uh, which we have not experienced, certainly, uh, in the last 50, 60 years. Uh, and I, I'm very hopeful that things are quickly returning to normal. I'm going to throw it over to you, Johannes, and tell us what did it feel like on the other side of the ocean when all of this back and forth was taking place? Thank you, uh, Christiana, and thanks for having me today. I think it hit uh, Europe, and especially Germany, by surprise. It's important to remember that uh, trade policy is not something Germany uh, spent a lot of time thinking about anymore in the past decade, because it is something the European Union negotiates for Germany. 
So if you think about the World Trade Organization, it is not Germany that has a seat there. It is the European Union. If you think about major trade deals, it's not Germany signing them. It's the European Union, uh, their trade commissioner. What Trump did, and I think what was what was unexpected, is that he put he made this issue of trade a national issue again. And Frank was uh, polite enough to say he complained about Europeans not contributing to NATO. What he said on stage was Angela, speaking of Chancellor Merkel, you're not paying your bills. So you made this personal, you made this national, and you took trade policy back to discussions with individual member states. Uh, not necessarily, maybe not trying to, to, to pick Europe uh, apart. Maybe he was, but he, he certainly um, uh, hit Europe by surprise. Uh, how did we get there? I think, uh, you know, we can't always just blame our partners. Uh, and the US remains Germany's and Europe's most important uh, partner. We also have to look at, did we explain our business model as Europeans enough? And did Germany explain its business model? Um, Germany has faced repeated criticism about exporting too much uh, and spending too little on, on domestic demand. And Germany has, has rebutted that with, uh, you know, not exactly polite statements about we're not going to excuse ourselves for our great products made in Germany. We're not going to excuse ourselves for the fact that we export so much and so successfully. We could have probably done that more successfully and more diplomatically. Um, but uh, what's done is done. So I want to bring the, as I said, the client perspective into this conversation. You've heard from Frank and Johannes, you know, fraught couple of years. It's an absolute pleasure to have Daniel Schmann joining us, who, among other, is the global head of Deutsche Bank's very successful trade finance business globally. Uh, and responsible for facilitating uh, and financing a significant amount of the global trade interaction. And clearly, Daniel, you want to get into this conversation to give us a perspective on what these trade tensions and the uncertainty around uh, geopolitical dynamics has meant for your clients over the past couple of years. Look, um, I think it's a spot on question. And what I now say might be a bit, bit controversial. Um, whenever there is a bit of tension, that's good for trade finance because that's good for margins. And that is when, when clients refer to banks they trust and who understand um, more complex, more, more tense trade relationships. Um, is it good for the overall trade? No. Is it good for banks who have the expertise and, and in the middle? Absolutely, yes. And if you just look at in, even with the, the, the trade tensions and all the talks, what has happened, Tesla just is building one of the biggest car factories in Germany. Um, um, in, in Germany, you, we would have not survived, <laughs> I'm just joking, um, COVID without Amazon and all of the, of the delivery. So I, I would argue uh, business has gone on fairly well and um, we have not seen um, um, a lot of impact. The only move we really have seen is that clients come to super experienced banks like ourselves and ask for advice how to maneuver within um, at times of uncertainty um, and maybe unpredictable reactions so that they basically um, hedge um, the bets they're going to do, uh, where they invest and how they invest. And that is how we have um, become even more relevant to our client uh, base during those times of tensions. 
let's roll the conversation forward from here uh, and think about, you know, we've put the Trump administration in the rearview mirror. What stands now in the way of a permanent agreement between the US and the European Union? Let me start maybe, Johannes, with you from a European perspective. When you talk about the general theme of uh, the contribution that global trade is making to the economic recovery post-COVID, I think that should be something that both sides of the Atlantic uh, and actually you know, all major players around the globe should be able to agree on. I think another very positive element is that we have um, new momentum uh, around the World Trade Organization. Uh, we have a new directed, uh, uh, director general of the WTO, a woman for the first time, uh, a politician from Nigeria. Um, and ultimately, if we're honest uh, with ourselves, the WTO hasn't done a great job uh, in terms of advancing trade, making it, uh, making, you know, coming out with better trade policy since it was set up in 1995. So um, there is US criticism uh, that, that is very relevant when, when we talk about the WTO. But I think we need to find a solution here because Germany and the European Union are very interested in the WTO not only surviving, but also the WTO being reformed. And we're still in the, in, in the situation. I think this will be a first major uh, decision uh, to, to be taken by the Biden administration. I'm sure Frank has a view here. So the Trump administration in um, you know the second half of last year essentially provoked the uh, the major, the highest dispute resolution mechanism. So let's say the top committee at the WTO to cease functioning because the US just didn't reappoint their representatives on this panel. Uh, as far as I understand, the Trump administration hasn't yet made a decision of, of whether they will will reappoint um, to, this, to this WTO body. And so I think we, we have to advance bilateral discussions, but something the EU will always insist on is that uh, you know, we need to think about trade as a unilateral, as a multilateral global matter. Frank, can I draw you into this conversation? Uh, it, are we looking at the Biden administration pulling out some pages from the Obama administration playbook around TTIP or otherwise, or how do we think that the Biden administration is likely to be thinking about this? You know, Trade, no matter who's sitting in the White House, is always a tough problem. I, I, 30 years ago, I got a master's degree in international trade finance. And I remember the issues back then, uh, and Daniel's probably laughing at this, thinking of the US versus the EU, it's the same problems. And they're the most core sensitive issues. It's agriculture is probably the most dominant issue. How do you protect farmers from both sides? Well, these things are very, very slow, glacially slow in terms of working that out. But I think that the appetite from the Biden administration is very high to uh, start building a free trade agreement uh, framework between not just the US and the EU, but also the UK. And it's gonna be a, a, a three, three key issues. One, he wants to work on a US-UK free trade agreement. But with that, and this is the difference between he and Trump, he is all, all in on multilateral as opposed to bilateral. Okay, we'll do a deal with you, UK, but we want you to get along with Brussels. We have to make sure that's good. And then I'm going to go to Brussels, and I'm going to say the same thing. And then I'm going to meet with NATO because that's core to all of this, and we must work together. On all of this, we can't have an ugly divorce. This has to be the most friendly of divorces between the two, which for the purpose of dealing with two other major issues, 
one that is so different even from the early days of Trump, it's China. And how do we as the West, Europe, the US, and increasingly other Asian countries, how are we facing China and dealing with China, not just on a trade issue, which is daunting enough, but the human rights issues, the increased aggression militarily in Asia, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. So we all have to work together. We've got to get a framework to work. This is Biden speaking between us bilaterally, multilaterally between the EU, the US, the UK, increasingly together, we work on China. So Johannes, I'm gonna come back to you on that point because I think Frank makes an excellent point that in looking at the US-EU dynamics in isolation, we're missing a trick on the other pressure points weighing on that relationship. One is certainly China. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on EU outlook toward China. But the other is of course, the you know very challenging dynamic now, EU, Brexit, how are the post-Brexit dynamics also weighing on any consideration uh, that the EU has in strengthening its partnership with the US. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on those two other pressure points. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think Frank is um, spot on with regard to China. And uh, if uh, we listen carefully to uh, European Trade Commissioner, uh, who's also the uh, Executive Vice President um, of, of the Commission, uh, Mr. Dombrovskis, what he said last week was, not, and I'm, I'm going to quote this because it's, it, it summarizes it so well, the EU has committed to strengthen our toolbox to protect ourselves when our global partners don't play by the rules. And that's very clearly aimed at China. The problem here and what he means by strengthening the toolbox, and I think that's where the, you know, the Biden administration and the European Commission have to work together to come up with uh, you know, responses that fit and don't contradict each other. The problem is that oftentimes um, you can easily uh, prove um, market distortion through dumping practices. That's fairly easy to prove. What's much more difficult is the question of subsidies. So where you have sort of unfair subsidies in China um, that, that distort the world market. In other words, we're good at catching uh, rule violations that happen on US or European soil we're a bit less good at leveling uh, global trade um, beyond our own jurisdictions. Um, Brexit, look, I think uh, from a financial uh, industry perspective, we've had a, a, a very cautious, um, a very worried look at Brexit negotiations and the post-Brexit world, um, simply because uh, financial services and the seamless uh, the, you know, the seamless trading and financial services products and the deployment of financial services uh, from the UK into the UN, vice versa, wasn't very, uh, wasn't very high up on the list during negotiations. I think when it comes to supply chains, when it comes to manufacturing, uh, the, the, the deal that was found between the EU and the UK is not actually that bad. So uh, on, on, you know, trading of physical goods, uh, things are looking a lot brighter than they might look when we think about, you know, fragmented uh, financial markets going forward. So I'm sure, you know, Daniel has has a good perspective on that. Um, there, I think it makes sense to to look from the perspective of industry uh, and take the banker hat off and to make things to make the outlook a bit more positive and promising. So I'm going to come back to Daniel um, because I do think uh, we want to talk about 
all of these dynamics that Frank and, and Johannes have laid out for us so eloquently and the opportunities that they may be creating uh, for our clients globally. So Daniel, I'd love your perspectives there. Yeah, I think um, in particular, happy to take that. Um, Frank made a very, very important remark and we need to basically look at it because usually in the press, you read about what you don't like. If we just take at the maritime and terrestrial uh, one road, one belt initiative, and if you see the picture behind me, that's it. Um, um, we need to be clear and I'll, I'll see that coming that we need to form a joint view on Africa because China has already formed the view and that is at our um, front front door. So I and, and when I saying um, uh, we need to form a view, that means that an economical and political view. So um, when they, we have formed that view and I'll see that coming, that means great opportunities for our clients because we talk then about infrastructure in, in investments and that is what the, the, the Americans and the Europeans can do. And we also have then to face the aftermath of, of um, COVID-19. Um, only this year, we have financed five hospitals in Africa. So there will be a need also to be addressed. And then it is the time for the Americans and the Europeans to formulate a strategy towards next to what they don't like, what they like. So where, where do we want to make friends? Where do we jointly want to in, invest? The one thing is to, to strengthen and, and re-engage on the NATO side. The next one is you need to have these economic trade relationships. You need to have that um, European angle or American angle into the friendly states. And that is driven by trade. And, and what does that mean for our clients? Look, I would argue we are an institute who can help clients in 160 countries around the world. So if they need advice in Ghana, Benin, happy to come to us. Um, if they need advice somewhere in Europe or vice versa, that's then us. So what is on the agenda will be super relevant for our client base in Europe and America. And I would argue it's super relevant for us as a bank because we are most relevant to those topics, which will be and have to be addressed going forward. Excellent perspective, Daniel. We are at the crossroads of this for our clients uh, in many, many different markets around the world. So this wouldn't be a conversation around horizon scanning if we didn't close by talking about the future and putting each of the three of you a little bit on the spot to give us a prediction. So last question goes to all three of you, Johannes first, then Frank, then Daniel. What is transatlantic trade. We started this conversation today talking specifically about the US-EU relationship. Would we see the reemergence of TTIP-like policies and how politically supported can that be? Need a prediction from each of the three of you. What does transatlantic trade between the US and the EU look like at the end of the Biden administration? Johannes, you first. I'm going to be bullish here and, and positive on the outlook. We will have a, a stable and good agreement uh, between the US and the European Union, because even trade agreement skeptics this side of the Atlantic will realize if we're not prepared uh, to engage in more trade with liberal parliamentary democracies like the US and Canada, who are we going to trade more with? 
Um, and the second prediction will be um, trade will, I'm not sure if trade will be fairer, and we could discuss for a long time uh, what that exactly means, but uh, it will definitely be greener um, because that's where the trend is going and that's where, where the Biden administration has put a major emphasis. So those would be two, my two predictions. I love your optimism. Frank, your perspectives? I'm totally with Johannes on the US-EU free trade will be in a much better place four years from now. But add to that, I think that there's going to be a unified effort to look for enhanced trade opportunities, the US and the EU into Africa. And I'm so glad Daniel mentioned this. I'm expecting the Biden administration in the next two years at least come out with a major trade initiative with Africa, as well as a, a very deep re-engagement with Latin America on trade. Why? Because you can't be pushing a climate agenda, you can't be committed to the Paris Accord unless you're helping these countries develop now beyond where they are in a climate sustainable uh, friendly environment. And you're going to see a big push from Biden, as I said, and he's going to try and pull Europe into this, into Africa and also into, uh, into Latin America more broadly. Daniel? I, I can only concur what, what Johannes and Frank said is, and I would argue after having had erratic and rough times, we all will appreciate that friendship is more powerful than um, I'm arguing over a nickel and a dime. So I'm super bullish that after rough times, we will come together even stronger because there are geopolitical, economical ESG challenges, and it's the only way to tackle them is if um, the Americans and the Europeans work hand in glove. And that is just great from a banking, from a client and from a society perspective. Horizon Scanning has been produced by Deutsche Bank and is intended for general information purposes only. By accessing Horizon Scanning, you confirm that you are entitled to do so in accordance with your own regulatory requirements. Any opinions, estimates, or projections discussed in this podcast constitute the current judgment of the speaker at the time of recording and do not represent a formal or official view of Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank does not make any representations or warranties in respect of the currency, accuracy, or completeness of any information included in this podcast or the reasonableness of any opinions expressed. Information included may not be complete or up to date for your purposes and is subject to change. For further disclosures and other important information, please visit research.db.com.